بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين نبينا محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين أما بعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته اللهم انفعنا بما علمتنا وعلمنا ما ينفعنا وارزقنا علما تنفعنا به آمين رب العالمين الحمد لله ثم الحمد لله we thank and we praise Allah عز وجل um, as we embark on a new study and a new book insha'Allah ta'ala as we have completed the week before last our fiqhul asma'il husna walhamdulillah and we ask Allah azza wa jal to accept from us what we have covered and what we are about to cover ameen ya rabbal alameen so the book insha'Allah that we will be doing is al-lu'lu'ul maknoon fi seeratin nabiyyil ma'moon al-lu'lu'ul maknoon which to translate it is the well-guarded pearls the well-guarded pearls uh, regarding the seerah of the trusted or faithful prophet fi seeratin nabiyyil ma'moon Tayyib, and this book is written by Sheikh Musa ibn Rashid al-Azimi Sheikh Musa al-Azimi um, and the book has been praised by a number of ulama it's a contemporary work so it's been praised by the likes of Sheikh Mashhur Hassan Salman Hafizahullah Ta'ala, who is one of the students of Sheikh Al-Albani. Likewise, Sheikh Khalid Al-Mashaykih, who is the student of Sheikh Ibn Thaymeen. Likewise, Sheikh Uthman Al-Khamis and others. Hafizahullah uh, Ta'ala. So we're going to go through this book, which is obviously a book of seerah, which is a book that goes through the life of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And today I will just touch on briefly the muqaddimah of the book, which is the brief introduction that the Sheikh wrote. And then we will go through um, the importance of seerah, the distinction or the virtues of seerah, um, and some other points, inshaAllah ta'ala, in today's lesson. So <clears throat> the Shaykh starts of the book by praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen, wa salatu wa salamu ala Sayyidil Mursaleen, and he sends his peace and his mercies upon the leader of all messengers, Imam al-Muttaqeen. Um, and then he basically mentions that it's not hidden or unknown to any Muslim that seerah has a great status in Islam. That studying the seerah and the, the biography in the life of Rasulullah is, import, is extremely important um, in Islam, in the life of a Muslim. Right? It is the Yanbu'u Safi, he says, which is the, like a pure spring for the student of fiqh. And it's the clear guide for the one who seeks rectification in his life. And it's al-mathalul a'la. It's the highest form of examples for a person who's looking for uslub, who's looking for suluk, who's looking for the best of akhlaq and the best of um, etiquette and so forth. And it's also al-dustur shamil the comprehensive and all-inclusive formula or constitution for any government who's looking for goodness, right? All goodness will be found in the studying of the seerah. And then the sheikh says that the salaf of this ummah, our predecessors, they had a great understanding of the seerah. And they gave great importance to the seerah. And the seerah, they studied and they implemented the teachings of the seerah in the tarbiyah of their children and their families. Even entire nations were built upon the seerah, or they benefited from the seerah 
of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Um, and then the Sheikh he mentions an important point, and he says that Sira is history, right? It's it's like studying history. It's a part of studying history. History is obviously a huge topic. Sira is one branch of history. And what we know from history, which is tarikh, what we know from tarikh is that it has been, how did it reach us? It reaches us through reports from people who, you know, reported certain incidences and things that took place. Right? So what happens in this, what happens um, in a science like this, which is based on people's reports? What's naturally going to happen is, there's going to be reports which are true and reports that are false, right? And this is known when we study history. There are certain things which are documented that are valid and then there are other things which are not as well documented or they don't have a chain of narration. And so what you will find is you get certain things which are authentic without any doubt. You get certain things which are unclear and you get certain things which are clearly fabricated or made up or untrue. And the same applies to the seerah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And that's why it's important that if we really want to study seerah, we need to try and find a correct source to study seerah, you know, from. Because you may find books of seerah when they, they include all narrations, which includes weak and fabricated and so forth. Right? Um, <clears throat> and here the author, he says, that he has been reading up on Sirah and studying Sirah for over 10 years. And he says that he read many books of Sirah and regarding the battles of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and as well as books of Hadith. And then when he came to this book that he compiled, what he did was is he focused on compiling the authentic narrations and basically sifting out the, the weak and fabricated. And so he tries his best in this book to stick to that which is authentic. So what we are going to study is the authentic seerah of Rasulullah which is built upon narrations that are authentic. And if the narration is unknown according to the Sheikh, he says he will make mention in the book that it is unknown and so forth. And there are many words that are used that are uncommon words. Again, he has gone through in his research. He has now gone through and he has clarified what these words mean and so forth. That's of course for the Arabic student. Because when you read some of the words, they are not common words that we we normally understand easily. The Sheikh obviously now refers to the classical works of Arabic where they explain what these words mean and so forth. Alhamdulillah. So we can see why this book is already a precious work. It's one of the books where the Sheikh has now gone to to the level of Trying to distinguish what is authentic and what's not authentic. And you will find many narrations that you read about Umar ibn Khattab, about this Sahabi, about Rasulullah about this woman doing this to him, about that happening to him. Whereas there's no actual narrations for it. You understand? So in reality, we can't say it is, it is, it's true. It could be made up, it could be weak. And that's why it's important that we try to use a work like this, where we can learn what's authentic and what. And stay away from that which is inauthentic and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Tayyib, the next chapter the Sheikh mentions is that which has been spoken or that which has been mentioned by certain ulama 
regarding the importance of Asira and Nabawiyah, of the prophetic Seerah. So firstly, he quotes from Zainul Abidin Ali, who is the son of Hussein, who is the son of Ali ibn Abi Talib. So this is who? The grandson of who? Ali. The grandson of Ali ibn Abi Talib, radiallahu anhum. He said, كُنَّا نُعَلِّمُ مَغَازِي رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ وَسَرَايَاهُ كَمَا نُعَلِّمُ السُّورَةَ مِنَ الْقُرْآنِ See, so this is the grandson of who? Of Ali. Which is the great-grandson of who? Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa He says, we used to study the battles, maghazi, the battles of the messenger of Allah and his seerah and his biography. Just like we used to study a surah from the Quran. So this was the importance that they gave to the seerah. Right? They used to study it just like they studied the Quran. Imam al-Zuhri rahimahullah, he said, في علم المغازي علم الدنيا والآخرة. In the knowledge of battles, now this refers to battles of the Prophet ﷺ and the Sahaba, which is part of Sirah. It's a major part of of Sirah. He says, in this knowledge, you will find the knowledge of the dunya and the akhira. Meaning, it's all type of knowledge that you are going to find when you study these incidents and these happenings in detail. Ismail ibn Muhammad ibn Saad ibn Abi Waqas. Saad ibn Abi Waqas is who? Sahabi, right? Sa'd ibn Abi Waqqas is a well-known Sahabi. This is his grandson saying that my father, which is the, the son of Sa'd ibn Abi Waqqas, saying, he says his father used to teach them the battles of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallama and he used to say, Ya Bunayya, O oh my son, these are the exploits of your fathers. These are the exploits of your fathers, so don't forget to remember them. Don't lose them. Hold on to them. Remember who was his father? The Sahaba. Right? These are their, this is what they did. This is what they accomplished. This is what they achieved. These are their reports and their narrations. So hold on to them. Don't forget to remember them and so forth. Imam al-Khatib al-Baghdadi rahimahullah said, that which is attached to the battles of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallama is ahkam kathira. Many rulings, many ahkam, many laws. فَيَجِبُ كَتْبُهَا وَالْحِفْظُ لَهَا So therefore he says it's obligatory that we write them down, that we document them, and that we memorize them, that we study them, that we understand them. Imam Ibn al-Jawzi rahimahullah said that the foundation of the foundation of knowledge, the foundation of the foundations of knowledge, and the most beneficial of all sciences is to study the seerah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and his sahaba. is to look into the seerah of Rasulullah and his sahaba. And then he mentioned what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said. Allah azza wa jal said, أُولَٰئِكَ الَّذِينَ هَدَى اللَّهُ فَبِهُدَاهُ مُقْتَدِهِ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, those are the ones who have been guided by Allah. Those are the ones who have been guided by Allah. فَبِهُدَاهُمْ So from their guidance, Take an example. What does this ayah tell us? Who are the ones who we know have been guided? Guaranteed guidance is who? Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. We know the sahaba were guided. Radiallahu anhum wa radu'an. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala praises them in many places in the Quran. So Allah says about them, those are the ones who have been guided. So take guidance from them. Your guidance, where do you get it? Take them as an example. 
And this is what we are doing when we study the seerah. This is what we do when we study Hayatu Sahaba and so forth. Even any Anbiya. This applies to, to all of the Anbiya <coughs> sorry, as well. Right? Um, <coughs> as Shaykh Ali Al-Tantawi rahimahullah, he said, it's obligatory upon every Rabbi Usratin. Meaning, basically the, 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 the man of the house. Right? Which means that the man of, of the house, the one in charge of every family, it's obligatory upon him to have within his home a, a, a all-encompassing book which deals with the seerah of the Prophet and to always read from it and to read it to his family and to his children and to have a time every day when they try to look into this book or to read this book or benefit from this book so that they can be raised upon the knowledge of the seerah of the greatest messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam this is what At-Tantawi said. That it's, it's incumbent upon who? Upon the fathers and the mothers and those who run the household to have within their homes a good book on seerah. A trustworthy book on seerah whereby the family can read or he can read to them. Right? A good practice is, for example, when the kids are small, instead of reading them fairy tales, you read them stories of the prophets. You can start in a very simplistic manner and as they get older you can read to them in more detail and so forth. This is of utmost importance that they grow up with this knowledge and not the knowledge of fairy tales and what this one did and what that one accomplished, what this hero in this fantasy world did and so, whereas we don't know the true heroes, the prophets and the sahaba and their companions of those prophets and so forth. And this is, wallahi min al-khasara, it's a great loss. It's something sad in reality that, that our families are raised like this. This is the general state of the Muslims that we are raised knowing all of these fairy tales, but the true stories of the Sahaba and the true heroes of Islam, male and female, we don't know about them. We don't know much about them. Wallahu musta'an. He then mentions that Sheikh Abu al-Hasan al-Nadwi, rahimahullah, he said that Asira al-Nabawiyya and the Sira of the Sahaba and their history, radiallahu anhum, is from the strongest sources of Iman being strengthened. To study the seerah and the seerah of the Sahaba is from the best sources to strengthen one's Iman. And even one's, one's deen in general, he says. And then he says, this is basically what keeps the ummah and the da'wah and the du'at it keeps them firm and it gives them nur into their hearts. Your, your heart becomes enlightened when you read about these men. Becomes you, you basically, you extract from their nur within your, your heart. This is the reality. It enlightens your heart. And it destroys that hardness of your, of your heart, he says. Which he says is extremely quick to disappear. That nur that comes into your heart can, can be extinguished extremely quickly. It disappears immediately. With the blowing of the wind, he says, and the storms, there goes the, the nur of your heart. How do we maintain this? One of the ways of maintaining the purity and the health of the heart is to look into the seerah, to study the seerah and so forth. He says that until it comes to a point where the person becomes like a body, like a dead body who's sleeping. 
but he's just being held up by his shoulders, he's high, that's his life, you know, there's no, there's nothing in his heart, he's just going by the day, it's like a dead person, no benefit, no khair, right, this is basically what the sheikh um, mentioned. Another quote he mentions is from Dr. Muhammad Abu Shahba, rahimahullah ta'ala, and he said that the best thing that the Muslims can study and he says, especially those teachers and those people in, involved in da'wah and spreading da'wah and so forth, the best thing they can study is the seerah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Because he says, that is the best teacher. Studying the seerah will become your teacher. It will become your educator. It will become your trainer, your discipliner. And he says, it is the first school. The foundation of all schools go back to the seerah. And who came out of that school? Who were the graduates of that school? The graduates of that school was the first generation of Muslims and Muslimat. They were the first graduates. Forget the other Madaris that we have today around the world, whether it's Medina, whether it's Mecca, whether it's Egypt, Syria, wherever it may be. The first school and the first graduates, the first students were who? Sahaba radiallahu anhum. And they came out of which school? The school of Rasulullah system. That's the seerah. That is the seerah. And then he says, and seldom will we ever see anything like them. Like, like them. So he says, within the seerah is that which every Muslim is searching for. That which every student of deen is, is searching for. And dunya. A person that's looking for dunya as well. He will find that goodness way in the seerah as well. The one who, he will benefit his iman, his belief, his knowledge, his action, his adab, his akhlaq. And he mentions so many things. Siyasa, and which means your politics basically. And imama, and qiyada, which means to lead and to be an imam. And justice and mercy, and bravery and fighting and jihad. And sacrificing, giving yourself up for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And all types of great attributes you will find in the seerah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And then he says that the seerah of the Prophet was the, was the school, was the madrasa. Where from there came the best of insan, the best of people. As we mentioned the sahaba. Al-sahaba tul-kiram radiallahu anhum ajma'een. From them was who? Al-Khalifa al-Rashid. The Khulafa al-Rashidin, the four of the best of them, the best leaders, the best fighters, the most brave of men, the best statesmen, Sahaba or politicians, they were statesmen, they were diplomats, the best and the most skilled of, of workers and laborers, scholars, Mufassirin, Sahaba, they were amongst the best of them, the most intelligent of people, Ramon, Sahaba. Some of them would study new languages over a few days and they would learn a new language. Today we take years to learn a new language. This was the, 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 you know, the intelligence of some of the Sahaba. The wisdom that they came out with, he says, that they spread across the globe with their knowledge and with their wisdom. Businessmen who came from the desert with sand and dust changed it into gold. And the best of farmers and laborers who treated their work as ibadah, that they knew through this work, they will earn, they will support their families, and this was ibadah for them. 
From them there was this laborer who preferred chopping wood and carrying it on his head because he viewed this to be more honorable than asking and begging from others. Right, the rich, the grateful, they understood that this wealth wasn't theirs. It comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So what did they do with the wealth? They gave it to others. They spent it all in the best of causes to benefit others, to benefit the communities and so forth. The poor people, extremely poor, were patient. And they sought the reward from Allah Azza wa Jal, not asking the rich for anything, not seeking any pity from the rich. They were patient and they were persevered and, and, and they were steadfast and they only sought the reward from Allah Azza wa Jal. This is all of these were from the thamarat, the fruits and the benefits of their belief in Allah and in their trust in Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And like this they became the Ummah al-Wasat. You know, that just nation, the best of nations. All of them, they came out of which school? The madrasa of the seerah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallama. Those are some of the quotes that the Sheikh mentions on what some of the ulama had to say about seerah, about the importance of, of seerah. The next chapter that the Sheikh goes into is Mazaya Sirat al-Nabawiyyah, which basically deals with the virtues, the advantages, or the distinctions of the seerah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, which is a very important topic as well. So he says that the seerah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam has many virtues to it. And this is why studying it is of utmost importance and has many, many great um, favors and benefits upon the person, upon his ruh, upon his aql, upon his intelligence, upon his deen, and in so many ways. Um, so we're going to go through some of the points that the Sheikh basically has, has mentioned for the virtues of the seerah. The first point he says is that it is the most authentic seerah, which means biography, of any messenger or prophet that was sent. The most authentic. Right? Again, we spoke about, uh, touched on this in the beginning, that you have seerah that is weak and authentic, right? It's history. If we take the seerah of Rasulullah specifically, then we have many ahadith that have been narrated regarding the seerah. Which means what? It comes with a chain of narration. We study it, it comes in the books of hadith. It's not just a report in some history book. You understand? So we have, it has reached us with the most authentic of chains. So we have no doubt in many of the narrations. You understand? So it's not a place to doubt, did this happen? Was he, where was he born? All of these, you know, certain information, we have no doubt over it. Because we know the ahadith that have been narrated are authentic. And no other seerah has been narrated like this. No other seerah has been documented like this. So this is already one distinctive advantage of the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ over any other seerah, over any other seerah. And this also makes it easy for us to, to refute the people of misguidance. Because we have what's authentic is clear. It's there, it's established. 
And then we have that which is weak, as we said, that which is unknown. It's a report, the chain is maybe, there's a difference of opinion over it. That's one thing. But nowadays, not only nowadays, but it happened before as well, people would make up things about the Prophet make up miracles, make up stories, that not lying upon him necessarily to make him look bad, but, <coughs> sorry, but making up miracles that's not established. You understand? Making up stories for, for the sake of it being a story, you know, to tell people this happened and the Prophet did this and he did that. And, but if it's not established, this deen is not based upon stories. Right? This deen is not based upon emotions. This deen is based upon the Quran and the Sunnah. So when it comes to the Sirah, Alhamdulillah, it has reached us in an authentic manner. And this is why we are trying to sift out the weak from the, from the strong. And this makes it easy for us to refute the batil that is being spread, or the fables that are being made up, the myths that are being made up. Right? Imam al-Dhahabi, rahimahullah, spoke about this. Al-Dhahabi lived many years ago from the students of Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah. He said that in the time of Umar, meaning when Umar was the Khalifa, he made it forbidden to write down hadith. Did you know this? Umar made it forbidden to narrate hadith and to study or basically write down hadith. Why is this? Any idea? He made it forbidden for people to just narrate hadith. Because firstly, in Umar's time, Islam spread far and wide. Remember, when there's a Khalifa, then all whatever he conquers becomes part of his, not a kingdom, but part of his rule, part of the dawla, the state. Do you understand? It's not like today we have boundaries. That's the country of Saudi Arabia. That's the country of Egypt. That king only rules over there. This president only rules over here. A khalifa rules over the entire Muslim ummah. So as it's spread and people are, new Muslims are coming in from different places, different languages. Umar made it a rule that you're not allowed to narrate hadith. Why is this? Because of the spread, there was fear that they would get mixed up and mix up the hadith. You understand? And there was a fear that they're going to spend time with hadith and not with Quran. And not with Quran. And this is some of the reasons why, some of the reasons why um, this was forbidden. And some say he only forbids certain type of hadith and so forth. Wallahu, wallahu a'lam. Right? But the point is, this was done. Why? To stop tail-bearing, to stop people making up stories. So it was left to only those who are trusted. The scholars and so forth, they could obviously teach the hadith and so forth. It's documented, they've memorized it. But for anybody to be talking about hadith, it's not allowed. You can be punished. Spend time with the Quran. Don't you worry about... This was actually done to preserve hadith. To preserve hadith. So Adhabi mentions this, and he says this was the time of Umar. The Muslims were still pious, they were righteous, they were trustworthy. The chains of narrations were not very long, right? But look at today, he says in his time. Imagine our time is ten times worse, right? In, in their time, he already complains about people just making up stories, people making up miracles, people, you know, just quoting things. This, and he says, whoever does this knowingly, he's a, he's a major sinner. 
and he's deceived the Muslims and he is a person who's oppressed himself and is a criminal according to the Quran and the Sunnah, he says. He's a, an enemy of the Sunnah because he's, he's, he's doing this. He's an enemy of the Sunnah because he's doing this. So, subhanAllah, and again, today's time, it's even worse. Social media, even worse. People just spread narrations like, you know, without any verification, without checking up anything. Um, and this is a major problem. This is a major problem. Whereas the seerah has been narrated in an authentic manner, alhamdulillah. And this deen has been preserved like this. The Quran and the Sunnah is preserved. Right? And this is where the ulama come in to distinguish between the weak and the, and the fabricated and so forth. So that we can stick to that which is authentic, inshaAllah. So that's already one point. That the, the sunnah has been narrated or the seerah has been narrated in an authentic manner. Clear cut. Whereas many others have not been. No seerah has been narrated as authentically as Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa seerah has been narrated. Secondly, the second point he says is that the life of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi is extremely clear. Extremely clear in every part of his life. Every part of his life has been made clear in these ahadith. From the time his father married Amina was documented until his death. So before he was conceived, <coughs> this is part of his seerah, until he passed away is documented. It, it, every part of his life has been made clear, should we say, in, in the seerah. Right, so the Sheikh says we know many things about his, bo- his, his, his birth, about his, him being an infant. We know things that happened to him as a youngster growing up. What he did as for work and so forth before he became a prophet. What, what he did when he left Makkah. Right, until Allah sent him as a, as a messenger. And after that we know even more. Once he became a messenger, the details were extremely clear. Clearly documented, right? This again is not for any, anybody else. Think of, which prophet do you know a lot about? Musa, Musa alayhi salam, Jayid. So what do you know about Musa's birth? We know a bit about his birth, but what happened in the time of Fir'aun, thrown into the water and so forth, right? What else do we know about Musa? Let's say after Musa became a prophet, what happened? What was he like? How much detail do we have about Musa? Alayhi salam. How much detail do we really have? What about Isa alayhi salam? We have certain details. Yes, we know certain things about them, right? But how much do we really know in detail? Can we say that we know so much about them? His personality? How did he speak? How did he sit? How did he look? How did he dress? How did he walk? How did he interact with his family? All these details is documented regarding Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. The other anbiya, it's, it's, not that de- it's not even near to the detail of the seerah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And this is the reality, right? Yes? Sahaba. Yes, so you see, we're going to get inshallah to, those, to those, that part of his life and then we will discuss the hadith, okay? But basically, 
people would, would narrate. You know what? When this boy was born, we, this happened. And you know what? When this happened when he was a youngster, and they would narrate. The same people would narrate, remembering what happened to him. Because it was miraculous things. There were times they would remember things about him, and they would, they would narrate it to him, would narrate it to, to, to those around him, and so forth. Like, like, like who? Yeah, but remember, we're not talking about narrations from him necessarily. It would be about him, yes. Yes, it would be, that has been documented, yes. So as I said, when we get to that stage of his life, we will discuss that, inshallah. And we will look at the hadith and see. Right, I'll highlight who narrates the hadith and so forth, inshallah. Tayyib. Um, so here the Sheikh mentions, for example, if we look at the life of the Prophet which has been documented, we know his personality. We've seen a hadith about it. He's eating. Why do we know about the eating of the Prophet Ate with his right hand. Ate what is close to him. Ate with three fingers. He said, Bismillah before he ate. Alhamdulillah after he ate. And whatever other du'as have been narrated. Many things. Just about his eating. Inni la akulu muttaki'an. He said, I don't eat when I'm reclining or laying down. That's not how the person ate. And so forth. Right? He's sitting and he's sit, the way he sat. Where there's a hadith that mentions from in Bukhari and Muslim uh, that he would sit in the masjid with his legs stretched out in front of him and his one foot over the other. Which many of us sit like this till today. If you just put your feet out in front of you, one foot upon the other. Sahaba narrated this from him. We saw him sitting in the masjid relaxing like this. You understand? His clothing. Many narrations. Huh? That he loved to wear white clothing. That was his favorite color. He also wore green. Right? Uh, one hadith mentions two green cloaks. Right? Upon him. His makeup or his appearance. What do we know about the appearance of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam? He wasn't tall, he wasn't short. He was in the middle. His hair was not curly, nor was it straight. It was in the middle. So it was straightish, but more like wavy. But not curly, nor was it dead spin straight. Right? He wasn't extremely dark, he wasn't extremely white either. He was in the middle. He walked slightly, leaning forward when he walked, and so forth. Sometimes his hair would reach the middle of his back. Sometimes it would reach, or between his shoulders, it would reach between his ears. Sometimes it was clean shaven after Hajj and Umrah or whatever. You understand? Details have reached us. At times he grew his hair long, yes. Not the middle of the back, sorry. I meant like here yeah, at the middle of the, the shoulder blades to that to reach, or the neck basically. Towards this, this area at the back. No, I didn't mean the, the middle of the back as in that far down. No? Sorry. Um, his speech. What do we know about his speech? He spoke clearly. He was not, he, he did not speak fast. Right? Aisha says that he never spoke as fast as you people speak. Said to some of the Sahaba, meaning maybe they spoke fast, you know. Some spoke clearly. And at times he would repeat what he said three times. At times he would repeat what he said three times. At times he would repeat what he said 
three times. You will notice this in some khutab. If you listen, Mecca, Medina, sometimes many of the ulama, when they give a khutbah, they say the same thing three times over and over. Because there's hikmah in it. The Prophet used to do this at times. Especially an important point. Well, depending who he's speaking to, he would repeat something three times. This has been narrated from him. His treatment of his family. His treatment of his family narrated in so many ahadith. His grandchild on his shoulder and he would make salah with her on his shoulder. When he goes down, he'd pick her up. Into ruku, he'd pick, put her down. Into sujood, when he stands back up, he lifts her back up on his shoulder and he makes salah like this. He would clean his home. The famous hadith of Aisha, she went out with him on an expedition. And he said to the Sahaba, go ahead. And he would walk alone with her at the back. And they would race each other. And she narrates the hadith, she says, I beat the Prophet And he kept quiet. Until some time later, where she became a bit, you could say a bit more chubby. She says she put on a bit of weight, a bit of flesh, the hadith mentions. And they went out again and he told the army, you carry on. And she stayed behind with him. And this was interaction. And they raised each other and he beat her. And he laughed. And he said, this was for that. Remember that time? This is me getting you back. This was interaction. And there's many ahadith about how he would interact with them, his wives, with his children, with his grandkids, and so forth. Narrations that speak about his worship and his salah. The famous hadith of his, his feet to his ankles becoming swollen in Qiyamul Layl. And they said to him, this, why do you overburden yourself like this? Yet Allah has forgiven your past sins and your, your future sins. And his response was, Should I not be a thankful slave? So that this is how the Prophet worshipped. And the way he treated his Sahaba. Narrations that speak about his, for example, the small boy who had a little bird that he used to play with. And when he walked past the boy again one day, the small bird passed away. Or it became missing. And he said to the boy, Ya Aba Umair, Ma fa'ala nughair? Oh, Abu Umair, what did that nughair do? Where's the small birdie? Where's that nughair? And he interacted with the boy. And he consoled the boy. Because the boy was obviously sad that his small bird had, had been lost. This is, this is the leader of the whole Muslim world. Coming down to a small boy in the road, comforting him, consoling him, speaking to him about the small bird. There is something special about this. There is something great about this. The, the humility, the love that he had for them, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And the Sheikh says, it's so, the details are so minute at times. That the Sahaba could tell you how many white hairs he had on his face or on his head. In fact, the hadith says, from Anas ibn Malik, radiallahu anhu, he says, I counted, I could not count, or I counted the hairs on the head and the lihya, the beard of Rasulullah sallallahu and I only reached, or I could only see, or I only counted 14 hairs that were white. He could tell you in detail. Imagine a head full of hair, full of beard, and this is how, how closely they watched him. 
He could say he had 14 white hairs. 14 white hairs. At the time of this narration, obviously. But this is how detailed sometimes they were about the Prophet No other seerah can compare to this. These are, well, how many hadith did we mention now? A handful. About some of, there are hundreds of, <coughs> of narrations. That is the detail of the seerah, which no other seerah can compare to. So that's point number two. Point number one, we said was, it's the most authentic seerah that we have. It reached us in an authentic manner. Secondly, every aspect of his life is detailed in the seerah. Right? From before he was born, right up until he died, is documented in the seerah. Thirdly, the Sheikh says that the seerah of Rasulullah teaches us the seerah of a man. It's a seerah of what? Of a human being. Insan. Whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blessed with the risala, with the message, with wahi. But this wahi didn't make him inhumane, right? Or beyond being a man. He got married, divorced, he got angry, he got happy, he bought, he sold, he forgot things at times, he was a man. Right? Insan. <coughs> In the true sense of the word. He was not an angel. Right? He was not Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or part of Allah or nur from Allah. He was an, a human being that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blessed and raised to the station that he raised him to. Right? But none of this has, has allowed him to reach the level of uluhiyya, of divinity where he is now worthy of, of worship. Uturububiyya, which makes him like a demi or a semi-god. This is not true for Rasulullah he was a human being. So why does, why does the Sheikh mention this? Because if you compare this to the seerah of Isa salam, and the Christians who were supposed to be following him, and the Buddhists who followed Buddha, right? What did they say about them? They gave them attributes of God or made them God. So what is the problem with this? How do, how do we as human beings benefit from a God? Do you understand? How do we take a lesson from God in terms of how to act and how to be and how you understand who to follow? Whereas if you take Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, his seerah never ever raised him to that level. As we discussed in detail when we spoke about Tawheed, right? That the Prophet was the hardest against Hulu. And he made sure that we don't become like the Christians and like others who went into Hulu. Excessive reverence of the righteous. He put a stop to this in many, many ways. Right? Why? So that his seerah can be one that is perfect for humanity. Perfect for humanity. So that people can benefit from him. So that people can look at every aspect of his life and benefit. They're not looking at God and saying, but you can't compare yourself to God or to the Son of God. This is a man. You can compare yourself to him. You are not going to reach his level of worship, his level of excellence, but he's still a, a man just like you and me. He's flesh and bones just like you. He lived and he died. He ate and he drank and he became hungry. He had desires and so forth. 
Right? So this is an important point as well. And this is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لَقَدْ كَانَ لَكُمْ فِي رَسُولِ اللَّهِ أُسْوَةٌ حَسَنَةٌ لِمَنْ كَانَ يَرْجُ اللَّهُ وَلَيَوْمَ الْآخِرِ وَذَكَرَ اللَّهَ كَثِيرًا In Surah Al-Ahzab, verse number 21, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Indeed, in the, for you in the Messenger of Allah is the best of uswah, is the best role model. It's the best of examples for those who desire Allah, who long for Allah, and the, and the last day, and those who remember Allah much. This is why he is the uswa for us. The best role model because he was a human being just like us. He went through what we go through. You understand? He suffered like we suffer at times. He became happy, he became sad. He was tired and he was times of strength. He had to eat, he had to drink. He had physical desires and so forth. He's our role model. Can we compare ourselves to Allah Azza wa Jal? Say Allah is my role model. Does that make any sense? Can Allah be your role model? You cannot be like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Allah, a God cannot be your role model. So hence, this is a very important point that the Sheikh makes. That this entire seerah, nothing ever raises Rasulullah sallallahu above his level. To that of hulu, like you find with the other religions, Wallahu musta'an. So point number four is that the seerah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is all-encompassing in every respect of humanity. It, it, it basically teaches us lessons in every respect, in every aspect of humanity. Every aspect of humanity. So for example, the seerah teaches us about, for, for, for youngsters basically, there's lessons for youngsters, about how the Prophet ﷺ was trustworthy, he was upright, he was steadfast. Before he became a messenger, as a youngster growing up, he was a good boy. He was a righteous boy. He was good to his elders. He was the most trustworthy. So in this aspect of his life, there's lessons for who? For youngsters, for the shabab, for the youth that are growing up. In that aspect of his life, there are many lessons. Likewise, the seerah also teaches us who? The the da'i, the people giving da'wah. Once he became a messenger, how did he do da'wah? How much sabr did he have? How much did he not persevere? How did he not examine the most beneficial and useful avenues of da'wah? To get his da'wah to being accepted and so forth. He gave everything to the da'wah. He gave every effort and he used every resource and all of his hard work went into Establishing this da'wah for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so that he can convey his message. There is a great lesson for who? For the people involved in da'wah. No matter what level you are on, if you, if you are Muslim and you want to give da'wah, there's lessons in it for you in the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Likewise, for the leader of any state, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa was the leader of the entire Muslim state. The way he dealt with people, the way he dealt with his enemies, the way he dealt with Everything by placing certain rules, regulations, um, protecting it with his wit, with his alertness, with his sincerity, and so forth. These lessons for the leaders as well. Likewise, for the husband and the father, and how he treated his family, his children, his wives, with the best of treatment. And how he fulfilled each one's right, never oppressing the other. 
Likewise with his children, never favoring the one over the other. The Prophet ﷺ was extremely just between all of them. There's lessons for the father in the life of the Prophet ﷺ, for the husband in the life of the Prophet ﷺ. Likewise, for the murabbi or the murshid, the one who's doing tarbiyah, the one who's raising somebody or cultivating somebody or nurturing others, whether it's a teacher, whether it's a scholar, whether it's a father, in this is great lessons in how the Prophet ﷺ, the tarbiyah of the sahaba and tarbiyah of the youngsters. From his ruh to their ruh. From his soul to theirs. It was sincere. From his heart to their heart. Likewise, the seerah teaches um, regarding your friends and your companions, your company, your neighbors. All of these details is there for each person in every part of his life. When you study the seerah, you can benefit in all of these aspects of life. So the seerah, basically this, this part here is what? It is comprehensive. It's all-inclusive for every aspect of a person's life. For every aspect of a person's life. Whether it's a leader, whether it's a da'i, whether it's a father, a husband, a friend, an educator, a politician, a statesman, etc. The seerah is for every single person. Point number five, he says, is that the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ gives us evidence, dalil, when there's absolutely no doubt for the truthfulness or the true uh, prophethood of the Prophet ﷺ, that he is undoubtedly the, the true prophet. That there's no doubt about him being the messenger of Allah Sallallahu alayhi wa Because when we see the seerah, we see a person who started out his da'wah from one point to the next, gaining victory from one point to the next, from getting help here to help there, and he grew like this. Without miracles. The Prophet didn't conquer with miracles. He didn't conquer through preternatural things, qawariq, which basically is anything like abnormal, man, anything beyond normal, supernatural. It wasn't anything like that, that, that gave him victory, or that, that aided him, or assisted him. But it was completely natural the way things happened for him, the way that he, um, he achieved what he achieved in terms of his da'wah. So he did da'wah and he was also harmed. He was also harmed by others. He, he called to others and he got certain helpers like the Ansar and the Muhajireen. He was at times forced to go to war, so he had to go to war. But he was full of hikmah. And he was a successful leader. Right? And his death did not approach or come except that his da'wah reached the entire Jazirat al-Arab. Entire Arabian Peninsula. All of them upon Iman. Right? And this is not through what? Through overpowering them, or it wasn't split by the sword. It was each one decided to become Muslim when he decided to become Muslim. And so therefore the Sheikh says, whosoever knows what the Arabs were upon, in terms of their belief and their traditions back then, and how they planned against the Prophet and planned to take revenge against him, how much they did this, 
until they even planned his assassination. This is what he had to face. Whosoever knows how difficult his battles were, was it ever equal? The Muslims versus the, the, the Kufar. They were always outnumbered. They were always stronger than them. But somehow, through the will of Allah and the mercy of Allah, the Prophet overcame. Whosoever knows the time period that his da'wah remained. How long was, it, was he a messenger? 23 years only. For to reach that level, for 23 years only he was a messenger. Not for 60 years, not 63 years. For 23 years he did da'wah only. That's not a long time to change the whole world. That's not a long time to overcome people and to change the, the state that they were in, the Arabs were in. Right? This is only from, this, this is already proof that he went through all of these great challenges and difficulties and impossible situations. But he got through it naturally. Naturally, without, as we said, supernatural powers or forces. He got through it naturally. Except that the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was with him. The aid of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was with him. And those who belied him and fought him, what was the difference? They did not have the help of Allah azza wa jal with him. This is enough for us to understand that this is the truth. That Allah aided his beloved messenger. And he gave him victory because of his sincerity. Because of what he sacrificed for this da'wah and so forth. You understand? So this teaches, point that Sheikh is trying to make is that <coughs> this da'wah was spread naturally. This da'wah was spread um, through the efforts of the Prophet even though he faced all of these impossibilities, this is an evidence for us for the truthfulness of the messenger. That he must truly and surely be what? The messenger of Allah. Logically, this only makes sense. How else did he achieve what he achieved? How else do you overcome people who outnumber you by ten or by more? Who overpower you in terms of their weapons and their wealth and their positions of power and every single thing? An unlettered man, how does he come with the Qur'an? How did he overpower them in terms of eloquence? These are logical evidences <coughs> that he was truly the messenger of Allah and the prophet of Allah. So what we learn from the seerah is also this. It gives us this yaqeen. The more you study the seerah, the more you are increased in your, your belief and your yaqeen and your certainty that this is, this is, this is definitely something divine. This is not something, you know, this is something divine. This is definitely from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So our belief will be increased. Our iman is increased and strengthened. And our yaqeen will be strengthened in terms of acknowledging that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi is truly the messenger of Allah. And that the Quran is true. Do you understand this point? Tayyip, are there any questions? So what were the five points we mentioned? The distinguishing factors for the seerah over others. The point number one we said was, it's the most authentic, right? Point number two was, everything about his life was narrated clearly, right? His, every, every part of his life was narrated clearly in hadith or in narrations. Number three was, it's a seerah of a person. Not of some demigod or false god or semi-god or God itself or the son of God. 
It's a scene of a person who we benefit from. That we can really look up to and take as a role model. The seerah is clear on this so we can truly benefit from it. Number four was? It, it covers every aspect of a person's life. All type of people from every aspect of your life. From when you start to learn, you can benefit from the seerah. Youngsters can benefit. Husbands can benefit. Sons can benefit. Fathers, teachers, da'wah, people in da'wah, shuyukh, leaders, mujahideen. The poor can benefit, the rich can benefit, leaders of state can benefit, and so forth. Every aspect of a person's life, the seerah teaches us lessons on them. And number five was that the seerah proves the authenticity of the prophethood of the Prophet That is no doubt that he is the messenger of Allah. We will definitely have no doubt once we study the seerah that he truly is the messenger of Allah. Understand this point? Taib. The next chapter which we'll cover and end off on is the Sheikh speaks about the Arabian Peninsula in the time of Jahiliyyah. Right? Before we get to the life, we need to understand the background. Why? Where was he sent? Where did he come to? What were the Arabs like? He was an Arab. He was sent to the Arabs. So what were the Arabs like? So we know that the Arabs before Islam, were they good people? They were not good people, right? They were known to be people who were evil. Or people whose akhlaq were extremely bad. Right? And they were overtaken in their gambling and in khamar, intoxication. And they reached the level of extremism, and fanaticism, which even led them to burying their daughters alive. This is the extent, this is how extreme they became. Um, they became people who would raid, go on raids and steal from others. They would intercept caravans as they travel through the desert, steal whatever they can, kill whatever they can, and so forth. Women became oppressed. The women were worthless in their society. They used to inherit like Inheritance of an animal, or no inheritance at all. There were certain foods only for men, and certain foods that only the woman can eat. The woman, men eat the best, the women eat whatever is there for them, whatever is left behind, or anything that's, that's inferior. And this was justified, to justify everything. Right? They would justify even men marrying women without any limit. Get married, don't get married. It was lawlessness, right? This is how the Arabs were. They just lived as they pleased. They, would, they, they revered the Haram, for example, Mecca, the Kaaba. They knew it's a place of um, sanctity, but they would make tawaf naked. The alcohol would flow through the Haram. There were idols in Mecca, in the Kaaba, and so forth. So the level of the ignorance and misguidance was to an extreme level. Um, and also, Asabiyah was rife, which is a tribalism and fanaticism to certain trials, tribes and so forth. So if you're from this tribe, you have the up hand over the next tribe. You will look down upon if you're from a certain tribe. You can't get married to another person. You can't even touch them. You can't eat from their food. 
and so forth. This is how extreme things were. And they would go to war with each other. They would go to war with each other as an amusement for entertainment purposes. They would decide to go to war with another tribe, fight, kill each other. This was entertainment for them. Or they would send their people to fight and they would watch on. It was entertainment for them, amusement for them. This is, you know, some of the things that they fell into. This was the state of the, the Arabian Peninsula when Rasulullah sallallahu or just before the Prophet or as he was basically sent to them, right? And thousands of them were killed. Thousands of them were killed. There was even uh, sicknesses and famine that was widespread amongst them because of outbreaks, because of the way they lived. Unclean, zina and so forth. This is how it was. So the Sheikh, he just touches on a few points in some detail and we'll wrap up inshallah at the end of this chapter. Firstly, he speaks about Khamar. He speaks about Khamar. That Khamar was extremely widespread. It was public. You didn't have to go to secret in, in a bar somewhere or somewhere where, you know, it was open for all. Widespread for one and all. It was deeply rooted within society. Khamar was all over the show. Right? And addictions, they were all alcoholics basically. Addicted, not all, but many of them were addicted. And it's mentioned in narrations how some of them were addicted and how they would gather together, you know, to, to drink together and so forth. This is mentioned in many lines of poetry from the poets back then. And they would speak about this in great detail. Right? And the shops, the liquor stores were always open, never closed, because they were always in business. In fact, the word tijara means business. The word tijara, which means business, was used as a synonym for selling alcohol. The word tijara was used for selling alcohol. When you say we're going to do business, what did you mean by that? We're selling alcohol. This is how widespread it was. This is how common it was for them to be drinking alcohol um, wherever they were. Right? Kimar. Kimar is gambling. This was, again, the pride of those days was gambling. The best of gamblers and so forth. In fact, the person who didn't gamble was someone who was looked down upon. If you were not a gambler, you were looked down upon. And Qatada, rahimahullah, he narrates and he says that a man in Jahiliyyah used to bet upon his family, upon his wealth, upon his homes. And at the end of the day, he would sit hariban saliban, basically bankrupt. All of his wealth has been taken away from him. Everything has been lost. And he would look into his wealth, which is in another man's hand. <coughs> and then, it would instill enmity between them and hatred. So this was the state of affairs. They would get drunk, gamble. He would bet everything on the table, put everything down. He loses everything. And he sits and he looks at that man walking away with everything that he owned. And this would then bring about hatred and anger. And they'd go to war. They'd kill. They'll fight and so forth. This was the state of affairs uh, in those days. Another issue was dealing in riba. Dealing in riba. 
So the Arabs as well as the Jews, the Jews back then as well, were people who used to deal in, in riba. And this was also widespread amongst them. Widespread amongst them and it became extreme amongst them. Imam Al-Tabari in this tafsir, he narrates and he says that riba in Jahiliyyah was in, um, basically they would, uh, for example, if a man had a debt, he would have to go pay his debt at the end of the year. If he's able to pay his debt, he'll pay his debt. If he cannot pay his debt, what happens? He would get another year onto his debt. We give you another year to pay the debt. But what you had to pay is now double. What you had to initially pay me for this year will now become so much. And they would then add on and add on. And every year this person would come back. Do you have what you need to pay me? No? Okay, I'll give you another year and then. But not, it's not that much anymore. It's now this much. This was the way riba was in the days of Jahiliyyah. So the narration says that um, <coughs> if he owed him a bint makhad, now these terms, this is how they used to uh, use the terms, ibna uh, or bint makhad, which basically means um, like some cattle which is in its second year of it's only basically under two years old, right? The next year, if you cannot pay that back, you have to pay Ibn Laboon. Ibn Laboon is three years old. The next year, if you cannot pay, it will be Ahiqa. Ahiqa is again four years old. Like this, it becomes more, something that's worth more every year. Thumma jadha, thumma ruba'iyan, hakada ila fawq. Right? Jadha five years, ruba'iyan will be that which has its four teeth in the front. A camel has it's grown already, so more and more value will be added onto your debt until it goes on and on and on and on. The same with dhahab or gold, right? The same thing will happen if you owe me 100 bars of gold, you can't pay it next year, 200 bars, next year, 250, next year, 300 bars, and so forth. This is how the riba was, and this was widespread amongst them. They were all dealing in riba all the time. In fact, they used to say. Whenever it was said to them it's not permissible, they would say, إِنَّمَا الْبَيْعُ مِثْلُ الْرِبَى And Allah mentions this in the Qur'an, they would say that bay is just like riba. There's no difference between the two. Whether you're buying, selling, transaction, dealing, it's the same like, like riba. To them it was all basically the same thing. Another issue there was, intisharu zina. Zina was also widespread. It was not something rare, it was not something looked down upon, it was normal. People had... The men took girlfriends and the women took boyfriends and zina was widespread. Zina was um, widespread. In fact, they would force some of the women to commit zina. They would basically force them, basically raping out, they would, they would force them to commit um, zina. Right? In fact, the hadith in Bukhari, Aisha anha, she says that, that nikah in the times of Jahiliyyah was of four types. Four types. And the one type that she means that we're going to mention is the fourth type she said was a woman would have a flag outside of her house, which is an indication that sign that this is basically like the home of a prostitute. And whoever would enter there, she would not reject them. So many men would come in and out, and this was what this is how it was. This is just how it was, 
And whoever comes in, she doesn't turn them away. Right? This is hadith in Bukhari. This is how it used to be. And if that woman became pregnant and she gave birth, all of that men would line up. And whoever the child followed would become the father. There was no DNA, there was no checking anything. If the child followed that man, he's the father. And he can't reject it. So he becomes the father. And so forth. It was complete chaos. There was no morality, there was no purity, there was no chastity, nothing. Um, so the women also had no choice, some of them. They were just forced. You understand? And of course Islam came and abolished all of these rules. Islam came and changed this. Um, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَلَا تُكْرِهُوا فَتَيَاتِكُمْ عَلَى الْبِغَاءِ إِنْ أَرَادَنَا تَحَصُّنَا لِتَبْتَهُ عَرَضَ الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that do not force your woman to upon prostitution, to, to, to become prostitutes. This is the Quran. If they desire chastity, then uh, if they desire chastity, تَحَصُّنَا لِتَبْتَهُ عَرَضَ الْحَيَةِ الدُّنْيَا to seek thereby the temporary enjoyment of the world. Yani don't force them because you want money from it. You understand? If they desire chastity, then you are not allowed to force them to commit zina with anybody. That's what the Quran basically says. The hadith also says it's haram to take the earnings of a prostitute woman. Um, naam. So this is how it was. You know, and the women were forced to commit zina by the men. And the women were also subjected to a lack of in, no inheritance. They were also, any of their rights were easily taken away. There was, there was no woman rights back then. Um, <clears throat> if they were divorced, nobody would marry them. Uh, and so forth. You understand? So this is the state that the women were in before Islam came along. And Islam had all of those things forbidden. Inheritance rules are put in place. A divorced woman, no, if she's a good woman, she'll be married. Um, there's no inferiority. What else? Prostitution. Prostitution, straight out haram. Boyfriend, girlfriend, haram. Right? All those things to protect the chastity and the honor of the woman and many, many other things. Wallahu musta'an. Another issue they would have is wa'duhumul banat. They would bury their daughters alive. They would bury their daughters alive. Why did they do this? Because they felt it was a dishonor to have a daughter. They felt it was, an, it was like a humiliation when they had a daughter. It was as if Allah had punished them. And so what they would do is, they would bury their daughters alive. Right? Um, <clears throat> sometimes because if the, some of them would, would, would restrict it. Okay, if she's dark-skinned, we bury her alive. If she's uh, a leper, we bury her alive. If it's a cripple, we bury them alive, and so forth. Others, if it's a daughter, we bury them alive. But they also had differences amongst them. Right? So they would kill their daughters. And if you think that's worse, bad enough, the sheikh mentions that they would bury them only in a special type of cloth. Some of them would only choose to bury them in a special type of clothing or cloth. So what would happen is they would travel to get this cloth for months or for years until that child becomes a child who can think and she's big already, she can understand and then she's killed and then she's buried or buried alive even in that state. 
This was the level of, 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 of oppression and sickness that these people were in and darkness that they were in. Allahu Musta'an. Right? As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَإِذَا بُشِّرَ أَحَدُهُمْ بِالْأُنْثَى ظَلَّ وَجْهُهُ مُسْوَدًّا وَهُوَ كَظِيمٌ When they are informed of a, of a female, a untha, a, a, a girl, their faces become dark and they suppress their, their anger and their grief. يَتَوَارَى مِنَ الْقَوْلِ قَوْمِ مِنْ سُوءٍ And they hide themselves from their family or from their people. So they were so humiliated, they would go and hide away. Min su'ima bushirabi. From the ill of what they were informed of, that bad news that they received of a girl, they would go and hide away. Ayumsikuhu ala hunin am yadusuhu fiturab. And then they would decide, should I keep this child with, with all of the humiliation or should I bury it under the ground? Allah says, how evil is what they decided. How evil is what they decided. This is the state of affairs. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about it in the Quran in Surah Al-Nahl, verse 58 to 59. They would become angry, their faces would become black, and they would hide away out of humiliation of this bad news, this evil news. And then they would decide, are we going to keep this child with all of the humiliation, or we just bury the child? And Allah says, How evil is what they, what they would decide. The last point the Sheikh means is, they would also just kill any child out of fear of poverty. So the poor amongst them, male or female, they would kill their children out of fear of poverty. That they, they, that they fear they would not be able to provide for, um, for the child and so forth. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also speaks about this in the Quran. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala basically says, وَلَا تَقْتُلُوا أَوْلَادَكُمْ مِنْ إِمْلَاقِ نَحْنُ نَرْزُقُكُمْ وَإِيَّاهُمْ and do not kill your children out of fear of poverty. We will provide for them and for you. We will provide for them and for you. So look how Islam comes and honors all. Allah makes it very clear. There's no need to fear. There's no need to worry. The same one who provides for you will provide for the child. And that's why we say every child brings its own rizq. Every child you have, it comes with its own rizq. There's no need to be worried to fear that how can we have another child? What's going to happen? Who's going to look after? Where's the money? Who's going to buy the nappies? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will provide for the child. You understand? Wallahu musta'an. And in the hadith, in Bukhari and Muslim, when they asked the Prophet which sin is the greatest of all, and he said, أن تجعل لله نداً وهو خلقك is to have a partner with Allah when he created you. And then he said, Basically to kill your child. Basically to, to kill your child. This is one of the major sins as the hadith mentions. So at the end of the chapter, the, the sheikh basically summarizes and he says <coughs> that that era and that generation wherein the Prophet ﷺ was sent to, right? was one of the darkest times in, in, in generation-wise, in terms of the standard of living and the way they were as people, and what they used to do of oppression and, and evil. It was one of the worst times to be alive, you can say. And as we can see, these are just some of the examples. You can, one can imagine how it was to live with those people. They're drinking, they're walking around naked, sleeping around, there's no chastity, there's no nothing. Women are, you know, like 
you just use them and abuse them. Give them what you want. Don't give them whatever. That's fine. Burying children alive. Big children at times. You know? People betting their life away. After that, just go and fight and kill and die in the streets. There was absolute chaos. There was no control. And there was no honor. There was no haya, No modesty. No chastity. No values. No nothing. This is what Rasulullah came into. This was the state of the Adabs when he came to them. You understand? So that paints a picture for us. Moving on to next week, inshallah, as to the next chapter will be, why was he sent to this people? Why was he sent to this, this people? That's what we'll cover next week, inshallah ta'ala. Wa sallallahu ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Shadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayka.